What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Megatherium Club podcast. Uh, my name is Sean, and I'm here with Spencer and Zach. And today's episode, um, I guess we don't have an official title for it yet. We kind of let Spencer uh, come up with that. But uh, the theme is locked in time or a, a fossil that uh, kind of tells a story. Um, I think that's a good. I think that's a good title. I like locked in well, time. Well, maybe we shouldn't use that title because it was the title of the book that inspired this idea in my head oh so i don't want to like copyright or get anybody in trouble using that we do not intend for any copyright infringement (laughs) or plagiarism yeah well no and this is all satire so we can get away with anything now oh perfect yeah Um, don't take anything we're saying literally but take it seriously (laughs) always serious but also not so that's it that's as vague as we can be um, but so Locked in Time, like I said, uh, is a book by Dean R. Lomax, uh, probably should refer to him as Dr. Dean R. Lomax, but it's about animal behavior unearthed in extraordinary fossils. And there's 50 of these examples in this book. And I kind of brought this idea up to the guys, if we could come up with a fossil, even one from the book, but I think we've actually all chosen ones not in the book itself. So that's also cool. Um, that it tells a story beyond just a basic fossil that someone found in their yard. And, and, and I'm oversimplifying that because all fossils tell a story to some de- degree, but um, one with some special knowledge or what, what's a better way to describe it, guys? I mean, yeah, I don't know if there's any anything beyond just a fossil that tells a story. I mean, okay. technically all fossils tell a story, um, but these specific fossils tell stories about behavior and what life was actually like for these animals. So I, I think you kind of nailed it right on the head there. All right, cool. And I, I'll just go ahead and start it off with the dueling dinosaurs fossil. And I'm sure some of you guys have heard about the fighting uh, dinosaurs or the, the fi- yeah, the fighting dinosaurs fossil which is uh, from Mongolia. It's between a Velociraptor and a an, uh, Protoceratops. Am I right about that? Yes. Yes. I believe so. I believe okay. so. Nailed it. <clears throat> well, um, th- this uh, fossil was found in the Hell's Creek Formation in Montana. And if you guys don't know much about the Hell's Creek Formation, it is uh, a massive hunk of rock and fossilized bones uh, that cover the Montana, the Dakotas, Wyoming, and uh, is pretty important paleontologically speaking. Uh, the deposits formed over 2 million years ago and cover uh, the time period of about, uh, co- uh, it formed over 2 million years and covers the time from 66 to 68 million years ago. And this specific formation is about 300 feet thick in places. And as you can imagine, that includes a lot of fossils, like the dueling dinosaurs fossil itself. And I don't want to get to what dinosaurs are in the fossil quite yet. Um, Let me just discuss what uh, this time period may be like first. And so why, why is the uh, Hell's Creek so important? Well, this time period of rock is, uh, it crosses the KPG boundary. But what does that mean? Yeah, uh, can you explain to me what that, what that is? Yeah, so the KPG boundary 
is the the time the extinction that happened between the Cretaceous period and the Paleogene period. So K for some reason stands for the Cretaceous period and the PG is the Paleogene. So this is like the extinction that comes to everybody's minds that wipes out the dinosaurs in quotations um, and has a lot of valuable information. And so anything that kind of crosses that boundary has like the last of the dinosaurs or non-avian dinosaurs, I should say, and really helps us, helps enlighten us on what life was like before that devastating asteroid impact. Um, and the fossil that, um, I'm going to discuss is still being studied. So some of these details that I'm going to discuss may change in the future. Uh, Things may, may change by the time you hear this. <laughs> that, yeah, they could change tomorrow. Uh, it, <laughs> it, it is currently being studied. And the deeper I got into this fossil, um, the the less I probably should have brought this fossil up for this specific uh, podcast, but I got too deep in it and wanted to just keep going anyways. <laughs> so the story that's... Uh, is kind of out there right now is kind of just a theory and nothing is finalized and uh but that's cool that's that's science and that's paleontology and everything yeah, isn't that is... paleontology in a nutshell like <laughs> yeah, everything that's... is just a, a basic guess essentially yes. <clears throat> i wouldn't i wouldn't call it well, <laughs> i mean or or, it's or, a, little, or a, a guess more scientific. or a guess <laughs> yeah but it's like nothing is for sure right like we were not right, there exactly. when these dinosaurs died we don't actually know if they were fighting. We did not right, physically observe it. Yeah. Yep. But I'll, I'll, from the evidence I'll, we can gather from the fossils, I'll, I'll let you take it away. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, in paleontology, there's always papers coming out. Um, and they're not guesses. Like, they are theories. Someone's done a lot of research. They're, they're comparing, you know, modern animals and other plants and stuff like that to data that they are bringing back from the past and they're coming up with the theory on what they think took place based on all the evidence that supports them and they present their paper doesn't mean they're necessarily right because you know a lot of the times in paleontology a, a year later or so someone comes out with another paper with all their data and supporting information saying why that person was wrong and honestly that's probably one of my favorite things about paleontology is that everybody's like arguing <laughs> it seems <laughs> that they're like what like it, it, it's great they're arguing but in like a professional manner i'm sure some people are getting a little mm, upset <laughs> yeah maybe not <laughs> but you, we, you can't do that today you can't be like i think crocodiles swim and some other guys out there like nope wrong they glide through the water like so you know something like that there is animals today the facts are presented and you clearly could just go observe them we can't we can't go observe non-avian dinosaurs in their natural habitat and know 100 percent of everything so uh, that was a sidetrack but back to the story um as the name suggests this fossil appears to be of two dinosaurs locked in combat to the death the idea that these dinosaurs were fighting there that they were fighting uh there was an earthquake that opened the earth beneath them and in they went Simple enough, right? Uh, buried by sandstone and entombed together for the next 66 million years until, it's a, until it was discovered by man. Okay, cool. But 
what dinosaurs were they, Sean? Jeez, come on, man, get to this. Well, here's where yeah. it gets interesting. Get to the point here. <laughs> yeah. Here's where it gets interesting. Um, and I didn't want to just like spit it out at the beginning. <clears throat> if you go on the internet right now, you type in dueling dinosaurs and you start look, clicking around on the first few links you get. Uh, you're going to get a few different answers depending on where you look. And you may not even notice it at first that you are coming up with different answers. Um, the first answer is a Triceratops and a Tyrannosaurus. E- easy enough? Yeah. That's and that's I'm ge- what I'm seeing right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, yep. and, and I'm guessing that almost all of you have a good picture in your head right now. Um, both of those are very popular, very iconic dinosaurs, or at least... You know, at a first glance of the names, um, but yeah, those are like tri- the most well-known dinosaurs out there. But <laughs> Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus are just the genus, and oh. and the specific species part of the names is part of the to be decided by scientists that not all these websites are willing to throw out there yet. And I think it's, it's that's a fair, you know, that's that's a pretty scientific approach to this to not. Uh, claim all of the information until it's presented. Um, but yeah, some that's smart. So, some sites though will straight up say Tyrannosaurus Rex and Triceratops Horridus. Um, and I guess this is a this is a good time to you know have a side note um, that and we can discuss the proper way to write or spell Tyrannosaurus Rex and. So Tyrannosaurus is the genus, and this means it is capitalized when writing it out. And Rex is the species, king. And the species name is always lowercase, always. And I, I, I guess I'm bringing this up right now because I, I constantly see T-Rex just absolutely butchered in, like, <laughs> pop, pop. They capitalize that R. <laughs> they are. Yes. They, they capitalize a, the R. They'll capitalize R-E-X. They'll, they'll put a, a hyphen between T and Rex. If, if you're going to shorten it, it's T period Rex in lowercase, all right? Wow, so, that really grinds my gears. <laughs> it grinds now, my gears. Now, how do you not, how do you know that maybe they're referring to a name? Somebody just happened to name this specific Tyrannosaurus Rex Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> or they, they named it That's, Trex. I think <laughs> I think of all the forty-four species or species specimens of Tyrannosaurus Rex that have been found. I don't think any of them has been named Tyrannosaurus Rex <laughs> with a surname. Um, <laughs> There's one but, that's named Sue. We saw it together. We did. Yeah, we don't have, we don't have to keep bringing that up. <laughs> Without Spencer, pseudo Sue <laughs> that was named in collaboration, I think, with the Chicago Field Museum. Oh yes. Oh, the the beer is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Pseudo yeah. Sue. Pseudo Sue. Like an IPA. I hated it. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes. Um, but T Rex is. I don't think anybody can argue with this. The most well known scientific name on the planet. I think more so than people even knowing what species and scientific name humans are. Guaranteed. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I I think people still think it's a joke if someone says, oh, we're uh, homo sapiens. Like, homo, like, it's a joke. There's, and (laughs) people don't realize T-Rex is the scientific name. Um, But, 
it's it's also used incorrectly all the time. And another way to uh, call the, this triceratops that I, I'm discussing is T. horridus. But, but no one does that unless you're a super nerd or, or a paleontologist or one in the same. Um, no, no one calls it T. horridus. You say yeah, triceratops. I'm not gonna lie. I never knew that triceratops, at least like af- like one of the species names was horridus. I mm-hmm. yeah, it's always just been triceratops. Always. Yep. Um, but so uh, back back to the fossil. So, so some sites won't say Tyrannosaurus rex, but instead they'll say Nanotyrannus, and this is. Uh, a very heated discussion, very heated topic of the whole Nanotyrannus. And Nanotyrannus is a genus given to a fossil found in 1941. This, this specimen was first brought, first thought to be an adult, um, but spoiler was later determined to be an adolescent. It was from the Hell's Creek formation as well, this, you know, end of the dinosaurs time period, and supposedly lived right alongside the king itself. It had some differences with the uh, with the with T Rex and some of, some of these being uh, the number of teeth in its jaw. It had it had more teeth than T Rex, so you know, obviously couldn't possibly be a T Rex, even though it's a two you know it's a theropod with with small arms, very similar shaped head, but maybe a bit more long, not as robust, but it also has more teeth and. Uh, I said small arms, but actually its arm ratio was, it has a much longer arm and ratio size to its body compared to that of a T-Rex. And I say this is a heated topic because in 2002, uh, or until 2002, people just, you know, heatedly debated whether or not this was a whole new genus or if this could possibly be just a younger Tyrannosaurus rex. Because there's there has never been there's never they have never found a young Tyrannosaurus Rex before or an egg, which is kind of mind blowing to me. And um, where was I at? Um, so they had more teeth, and this this heated discussion was uh, kind of mostly wrapped up in two thousand and two when they analyzed these bones and looked for like um if you're looking at trees you see ring growths they did the same thing for bones and realized these individuals were uh juveniles and about 13 to 15 years old and while t-rexes are not thought to be mature until they reach 20 years old so this decent gap in maturity could explain their whole size difference um so at this point, most people, probably probably most, I'll say, um, have believe Nanotyrannus is no longer a, a whole separate genus and is actually just a younger uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. They lived alongside them. There's no you know young T-rexes being found um, because they're looking for something that looks identical, just small to a T-rex. Well, these other differences that are described with the, the teeth and the arms um, can be described through something I find fascinating, and it's called ontogenetic development. And wow, that was a big word, but what does that mean? Um, <laughs> You're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> so, have you guys ever heard of this? 
Yeah. Ontogenetic development. It, it, is specifically... The development of your bones? Yeah, so I guess ontogenetic is just referring to like the process of developing from embryo to fully grown adult and all the stages in between. So it's kind of like a catch-all. But um, we, as humans, we kind of just like grow you know symmetrically we don't all of a sudden just like sprout new wings or something once we hit maturity or something like that um Mm -hmm. maybe maybe an easier example is with with deer um with with male deer you know they're if they're a young buck they're gonna have small antlers as they get bigger and older they'll have much more robust massive antlers and as well as their, you know, their skeleton's going to grow a bit, but the biggest change is, is their antlers. Um, another example w- with dinosaurs is Pachycephalosaurus, which uh, are you guys aware of? Which which one that is? Yeah, yes. totally. But if you like told us it's for for the audience, you know, for the audience. Like, All right, yeah, so if you, uh, <laughs> tell them what that is. That would be so, great. So from the Lost World, if anybody has seen the Lost World Jurassic Park movie. Uh, that scene with the stampeding dinosaurs and those uh, hunters, like trappers, I don't know what their technical term was. That team, um, if you're imagining the scene, the good guys, if you will, are up on that cliff with their binoculars looking down at this sudden team of poachers, maybe that's the word, uh, chasing this. I think they were hunters. They were, they were legally hunting them, weren't they? Like... This guy like came to the island just to hunt. Dinosaurs. Yeah, there's the one guy that wanted to hunt his, you know, his Rex buck, but everybody else was just kind of capturing them. So I didn't know if hunting was the right word, but that that's besides the point. If you imagine that scene and all the vehicles are kind of like driving through this stampede of herbivores, and like you got the the sauropods and the the paras uh, the parasaurs, um, well, you got the one guy that they, the the one vehicle snares this creature that's shorter than a human with, with a thick head and the 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 the, the paleontologist with long hair and a beard gets out and he goes that's a that's a that's a that's a pachycephalosaurus and uh he's like careful it's got a it's got a thick dome on its head and kind of hits his you know cowboy hat and then it like i guess i don't remember what the what happens but all of a sudden it like charges their vehicle and it just like knocks them like right out the other side and so that's that's pachycephalosaurus like thick head it's right there in the name and it's it's that creature um smaller than a human it, it's on two legs uh herbivore typically represented as uh but they like butt heads with each other so kind of like a, a ram would do yes right? yes um like current day representation is kind of like a ram yeah where they butt heads for territorial reasons or maybe even protection i guess we can't you know rule that out but yeah they they, they do minor torpor damage <laughs> it, <laughs> <laughs> yes you can ride them and do torpor damage to things if you're playing an arc <laughs> so. and the little known fact is that they can run through any structure that's made out of wood sure can just like <laughs> yep. crash through it and that, cool. that is one of those un, unknown facts about it i feel like Almost useless because if you were in a situation <laughs> where you could do that, nobody's going to build out of wood. But True. Nope. Um, <laughs> that's an but yeah. so Pachycephalosaurus is another one where you have Draco Rex, Stigmaloc, 
in Pachycephalosaurus. Three creatures thought to have been three different species, um, but they with but recent discoveries have thought these are all just stages of their ontogenetic development with draco rex being the earliest with not much of a rounded head just spiky head bumps then you got this uh uh, lock with a slightly rounded head more spikes and bumps around the side of it and then you got this pachycephalosaurus with a great big dome and uh some spikes and bumps around the edges but um dinosaurs i think are really cool because they make drastic ontogenetic developmental changes in their life that we don't see a lot of modern animals do and some of these in the t-rex are their their jaw changes a bit where instead of being a bit more bits longer and slender they become robust and just get that massive jaw power that they're known for and they probably you know their arm ratio shrinks up a bit and the loss of teeth just goes along with their developmental changes in their jaw but okay uh we got off it a track a bit there talking about um pachycephalosaurus and you know some sites are saying this is a nanotyrannus i i may argue against that but yeah that's what i'm saying some sites the first thing i clicked on was like is this a tyrannosaurus or is nanotyrannus a species yeah (laughs) you know this is one of these things that the scientists working on are going to have to determine now and that's kind of cool i think the discussion kind of brought got brought back up because of this fossil um and so you know, maybe maybe it is a nano tyrannus, but is there another tyrannosaur out there? Maybe maybe we're overlooking another species of tyrannosaur. And I know in recent years, if they or they've been debating whether or not T. Rex should be broken down into three species: Regina and Imperial. Oh, it's it was basically like king, queen, and emperor. I forget what the emperor in Latin is. Um, that was kind of what. I don't know. I'm making up Harry Potter spells here. (laughs) (laughs) Imperio. Yes. An illegal Um, curse. (laughs) But that was kind of like quickly put back into the theories of possibility boxes that we're not going to discuss. Um, But there is another Tyrannosaurus species out there, and that is Tyrannosaurus batar, which is... is, uh, tarbosaurus but um so like its old name is tarbosaurus and its new one is tyrannosaurus batar they're you know synonymous these days t batar it's the same thing but it is very while it is a close relative of t-rex uh tarbosaurus has normally only been found in asia so this one locked in battle with this triceratops is probably not t batar but it is good to know that there are multiple species of Tyrannosaurus out there. So when they say when so when these papers say, oh, there's a Tyrannosaurus, nothing else in this fossil, you can't just immediately jump to T Rex. Yeah, all of this is to say we don't know if this is T Rex or not. <laughs> but yes, yes, um, but I think it's just an important part of this fossil and what we're waiting on 
and also why I was like hesitant to actually discuss this fossil, but I got too deep into it, and so I'm sharing um, the story that I've come across with you guys and setting the bar low for these next two guys to just come <laughs> no, in here no, no. and no, blow no, you no. out of the water. Um, no, no, no. I, it's, I mean, this. It's again telling a story, but. Again, stories are interpreted by the people who hear it. Mm-hmm. And right now, you and then obviously us and uh, whoever, we're the ones hearing the story. I mean, even the paleontologists studying it are, are in a way hearing the story of what was and trying to interpret it. So it's a good story in itself. There's just more to unravel with it. So it's yeah. I would give yourself more credit. <laughs> uh, it's super interesting. And it's one that like... Again, like you said, because there's so much being done, this is something that we can follow up on mm-hmm. when we hear more about it, because there will be more about it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. This is a really so. cool fossil, and if, for anybody listening, if you go to duelingdinosaurs.org, uh, they have some pretty good information on it, You know, given that it's the website named after them. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a great picture of this fossil on there, and it's it's... It's crazy preserved. It's It's, so good. It's a giant block of stone. And um, I do have a bit more to say about this. Uh, So we know that there's multiple species of Tyrannosaurus. But there are two current species that make up the genus of Triceratops with Horridus and Proursus. And I'm not sure if I said that last one correctly. You guys know I am, you know, amazing at pronouncing... Uh, Latin, but I've I've practiced all. I have two, three, uh, two Latin names in mind. I practice them, and I'm gonna butcher. Them. <laughs> okay. I'm telling you, if you just pretend you're reading Harry Potter spells, <laughs> it's perfect, perfect pronunciation. Nice. Um, but so these are the only two species in Triceratops today. But at one point there were 17, and then they were kind of clumped and grouped and separated and clumped and grouped into what is left today with two. Um, and so while the theory of them fighting and as they died seems like a plausible one, it is not confirmed yet. And it is possible that Triceratops could have died and then was being fed on by the Tyrannosaurus. Uh, that's also not ruled out yet. There are teeth in the Triceratops from a predator. Was it the individual that was laid to rest with it? Not confirmed yet. Was there a pack of dinosaurs involved in this fight? Who's to say? Uh, but we will let the paleontologists do their best to solve this. And while the story behind the fossil itself is shrouded in fog, the story since it was discovered is also really interesting. And I'll quickly uh, get through this and then pass it on to somebody else. But uh, so uh, Marianne and Liege Marais found this fossil in uh, 2006. Yeah. And it was just... Uh, they, they had some commercial fossil hunters uh, operating on their land in Montana. They found a Triceratops pelvis sticking out of the ground, which later became the entire fossil that will be known as the dueling dinosaurs. And after digging it up, the uh, commercial fossil hunter, his name is Clayton Phipps, tried to sell the fossil to any museum he could, but no one was interested, which... You know, that may be a shocker, but I'll kind of get to that in a second. Um, he then had the fossil appraised for $9 million and tried to take it to sell to anybody else at a public auction. And the highest bid was only $5.5 million. 
he was not happy with this, and so the, the fossil remained in storage. Um, in 2016, Lindsay Zano, who worked at the North Carolina State University and the Museum of Natural Sciences out here, made a visit to see this fossil um, because the museum was interested in it. But then the, a massive road bump came when the previous owners of the land that it was found on, the Severson brothers, um, took the Murrays to court saying that they really owned the fossil because they had retained two-thirds of the land's mineral rights and thought they should be seeing the profits from selling this fossil. And calling the fossil a mineral is a major trigger to paleontologists, and (laughs) (laughs) many were offended by this. And while, yes, a mineral is made up of, or a fossil is made up of minerals. Yeah, uh, it's mineralized a lot of times, right? Yeah, well, we're we're made up of minerals. Everything's made up of minerals. (laughs) But there, there exists a greater importance with fossils than... Just what a, a gem yeah or rock minerals tend to have there's knowledge to be unlocked there that you know these other gems do not and at, so a court sided with the murrays at first and then another court sided with the seversons declaring that uh fossils are minerals And then they took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court overturned it, saying fossils cannot be considered minerals. And this final decision was made in 2016, and the, or sorry, 2020. So it was four years of like court battles. This went all the way to the Supreme Court, the idea of whether or not fossils are minerals. Yeah. I think what (laughs) I I thought was really cool. They've got some, they've got way more important things to be doing, right? Well, it was someone it was basically deciding who was getting millions of dollars. Yeah, and, that's not Supreme Court business. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think also but, also like for the it kind of sets the tone for any fossils in the future. Yeah. I think that's where it comes into play. It's like not this one particular one, mm-hmm. but everything that comes after this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that uh, that precedent can be set by a lower court, right? That's just uh, my opinion. Well, the, but I mean, if we keep the like, we have so many undiscovered fossils out there, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, if you find something that's really important, uh, I, I I don't know. I, I feel like it's I feel like it's Supreme Court worthy. But I, I, I think so because there's you know there's legal battles all over the world right now with fossils with you know. Fossils were found in Mongolia, but they're in the U.S. And like, there's a whole the whole ethical issue of where should the fossils be shown off at? Because we're also t- like, there's examples of fossils being collected in poor parts of Africa, and people are making money off of these fossils in wealthy nations when they could be in these countries that they were found and. People could be making money off of them there showing them off or people in these countries should be studying them or um, maybe making yeah, money. Those with, sound like, like a lot more like Supreme Court worthy ethical and moral decisions rather than mm-hmm. like is a fossil a mineral? Like, yeah, those kinds of things I, I would consider being worthy of like, you know, really high Supreme Courts. Right. But. I mean, you could but, yeah, ask I mean, a paleontologist. I, I guess at the same time, like, 
you know, in order to get to that level, we have to have some sort of basis, right? Mm -hmm. Where, like, what? How do we even define what a fossil is? Um, and yes, granted, the three of us sitting here know what that is. I mean, I'm pretty um, sure there's a but, dictionary definition. <laughs> well, there is. There, there for sure is. Um, but at the same time, like, somebody needs to establish what that means. And if the people that are going to, uh, not the not the people, but like the courts that are defining these higher level ethical dilemmas. I don't know. I feel like they should also be laying the foundation for those dilemmas. Right. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. Um, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe it is too much or, um, so yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. We'll, we'll take it to the Supreme court. We'll take yeah. it to the <laughs> they can decide who gets to decide. Perfect. <laughs> so I, I guess after that final decision was made in 2020, it for at that point, 14 years had passed um, since they found it. And it was finally decided where the fossil would end up. Uh, well, I guess it was finally released, announced where it would end up. The, the museum of natural science in Raleigh kind of had the lock on it. Like, they were going to get the fossil regardless. It was just sitting in a warehouse somewhere and who was going to get the money from them or like the, the non-for-profit organization that helped the museum get it. Like it was, it was just a decision of who was going to get the money. They all knew it was going to the museum in Raleigh, but no one could announce that, I guess, for legal reasons. Um, but so it is there and I got really excited because when I found out it was there, so I, I went to the museum with my wife and specifically just to see this fossil. And it is not on display yet, unfortunately. Uh, they <laughs> say it should uh, be next year, and it just keeps getting pushed back. But I think it's it's massive. That like they have the block. I think I don't know what all they have in there, but um, one interesting thing I thought though is all of the art. At, at, for advertising and on the website Zach mentioned is of a few triceratops being surrounded by a pack of small tyrannosaurs. So they, they don't show the full T-Rex in there for sure. They're, they're, they're kind of uh, painting the picture that a pack of these smaller tyrannosaurs were in a fight with some uh, with some triceratops. So was it a 1v1 thing? That's just, you know, who ended up having pulling the, sh the short straw that day to die in the, the sand pit or whatever. Um, but they do depict both the Triceratops and the Tyrannosaurus with bright blue coloring, and the Triceratops even has some red on its frill. So it's it's really cool art. They're just they're just painting an interesting picture that almost hints at the Nano Tyrannus a bit, I feel like. But um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what they say. Um, yeah. Okay. So, I think hopefully it's soon now that all that legal, uh, stuff is over. Yeah. Well, the museum's also had it now for almost four years. It's just, oh my God. True. It's, it is, it's, it is 2023. <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Um, they've really gosh, uh, taken their time to set up this properly. So hopefully well if there's one thing that i've learned from the, this research is like getting fossils prepared takes 
so long. Like oh, one yeah. of the fossils that I was researching, I forget how many thousands of hours were put into just like making it, you know, display and like study worthy, like just to prepare it to be studied. Wow. Yeah. It wasn't like, yeah. you know, it took some guy a week or something to chip away the rock. It took <laughs> liter- it took a team thousands of hours. Thousands. It's just oh, ridiculous. Yep. Oh. But yet that yeah, what's up, Sean? Oh, I was just gonna say and I, I said I was going to uh discuss the whole issue behind this commercial fossil hunter. Um having troubles selling this fossil to any museum and then even at a private auction like it wasn't going for as much money as you you would think um it's it, it's it's still kind of like a gray area and people are kind of upset that a, a museum purchased this fossil from a commercial fossil hunter because it, it kind of sets a bad example and encourages more commercial fossil hunters to do this type of thing and try to try to sell to museums because i think the consensus is we do lose a bit of scientific knowledge when yeah if, if you say amateurs are the ones digging it up and a, a good part of uh i don't know i could see a whole economy being built off of that like like if you're gonna do good work and like get out a really good and like scientifically worthy fossil like we'll pay you well, more like the I issue know. i think i see is museums rarely are the ones offering the highest bid and if if you're a commercial fossil hunter at least you you're, you're not in it for the knowledge you're in it for the money and so yeah the highest bid is likely not going to a museum where we just recently lost that one tyrannosaurus rex fossil to a private owner and they sold it for how like way over the like the six million that this fossil was sold for um stan like how much was stan just sold for stan the t-rex oh wasn't stan donated though he was like bought he was bought in an auction but then donated to a museum or am i thinking of something else uh well stan was sold for 31.8 million dollars god um that's another fossil where there was a ton of court battles over right i don't see anything about donated back to a museum or anything like that there are a bunch of like i think it has been like pretty thoroughly studied but you know it's never 100 percent. but now yeah he he is they they say that um wait a second given the the fact i don't know i don't know what happened to him it's he's not in a museum currently so i think he went to some guy in the oh will be part of a new natural history museum in the united arab emirates yeah i'm seeing in okay. yeah in 2022 abu dhabi bought it yeah and yeah they're opening they're opening him up in a museum in okay 2025 so, okay. well there we go 
Well, that it was kind yeah. of you know I guess it had a good ending to that story. It didn't. It definitely didn't have to go to a museum. A private person bought it. Um, I think the fear is the the more you no. open it up to the public, the more fossils you're going to lose. Also, I'm definitely on the bandwagon that companies tend to do good quality work when they get started, but because they're for profit, eventually they're going to start cutting corners. Mm-hmm. And just look at any product ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the initial yeah. ones are always the best, and then over time they just get worse and worse. Um, sometimes the technology catches up, but I don't see that really happening with fossils too much. Um, I think it. I think it's a can of worms that should not be opened, even if like we can get more people involved. Mm-hmm. Then we should just fund, like we should just fund the science more at that point. Um, but I don't see that happening either. So, yeah. But that is the dueling dinosaurs. All right, I'm up. <clears throat> okay, so my fossil, um, maybe the story behind its discovery is what I was what I was more interested in. It was I originally heard about this story from a book called Almost Human by Lee Berger, uh, the guy who discovered the fossil, and it's the fossil Homo naledi. Now, Homo sapiens—that's like you and me, right? Uh, like, like we were talking about before with like genus and species name, Homo is the genus name of you and me and Sapiens is our species name. Now this is Homo naledi, uh, of extremely closely relate or extremely close rela- relative to us or extremely close relative to us humans and i wanted to start out with a little etymology where uh homo it that's basically it means human and then naledi which is um actually the local sotho language and it means star and homo naledi was named after the rising star cave system where it was discovered and this cave system was thought to be uh, completely mapped and it was one of it's one of the most well-known cave systems in all of Africa and there's actually several different um, hominin fossils that were found around that area actually uh, not not homo naledi but other ones and then uh, Lee Berger the guy who wrote the book and he's the guy that uh, is credited for this discovery Uh, He hired two guys to explore this cave system a little further, and those guys found, you know, hominid fossils in just like laying in the dirt. I I saw some pictures of this, and yeah, there's literally a mandible and like teeth, and you can see the outline of a skull. They're just laying in the dirt where these guys explored to. And it's worth noting that this cave is 45 minutes away from Johannesburg, South Africa, like one of the biggest cities in South Africa. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's just kind of crazy that these bones had never been discovered. And I should also note that this is like 2013, like 10 years ago. Um, yeah, so these two original explorers, they found bones, uh, they were hominid bones, but they were not human as in homo sapiens um 
Now, this cave system was well known, but getting into this room was no joke. I want to show you guys a picture right now. Uh, I'm sharing my screen, and if you look at if you look at this, all right. So you guys are looking at this picture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's the cave entrance, and it goes down into what's labeled as the Superman crawl. And this is a spot where you have to crawl like army crawl along like Superman, like, like Superman, because (laughs) this, this tunnel, I guess is, I want to, what was it? It was seven and a half inches tall. I was going to say, yeah, that looks very, very small. Yeah. Yeah. And like there's, that's not even the smallest part. I think that one was eight actually it was eight inches tall and then like you go up the dragon's back which from lee Berger's testimony it's like if you if you slip on this like you're falling you die like that that's it and then after you climb up the dragon's back you have to go back down a vertical chute that is seven inches in diameter seven inches (laughs) like so you gotta be small yeah i don't like i don't know how that's even physically possible i'm trying to picture if my chest is seven inches thick i could do it i think i could do it like i yeah so yeah just like picture picture this yeah like you gotta like suck in and break every rib along with it (laughs) Yeah, break break every bone in your body, or as the next guy that I'm going to show you uh, does. Yeah, just wait. This guy's crawling through this hole right now, and he has to. I don't know how he does this, but he is able to dislocate his shoulders so that he can fit through this hole. It's absolutely insane. My first thought was, why don't they just dig it out? And then immediately I'm thinking after that, the guy's like, you can't dig this out because it'll collapse. <laughs> yeah. So none of that. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Because I want to see you. I want you guys to see him dislocating his shoulders. Watch this. Okay. Oh, yep. There he. Okay. Yeah. What? There he goes. What? <laughs> he just pulls his arms up like that. Okay. That's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. So. That's that's the only possible way into what is called now the Dinaledi chamber. That and that is where the Homo naledi fossils were found. Like what? How how one, how do you find this spot? Two, how do you find people to get in there? Is that like on the job uh, job posting? You're like, all right, uh, must not be afraid of the dark. Uh, must uh, have some experience oh my with God. caves. That's actually uh, take your shoulders out of their sockets. Um, like what? That's actually kind of crazy. You just said that because when they first found these original fossils and they realized how hard it was going to be to get in there, Lee Berger put out. Uh, he didn't put out just like a, a job blast on Indeed or anything. He just put like a Facebook post. He went to Facebook and he like 
said, hey, I'm looking for paleoanthropology PhDs of this body proportion. <laughs> like, like he had literal body proportions and he's like, I'm not going to hear anything like this. This is a total shot in the dark. I don't know what how, like we're not going to hear anything back about this. Are you kidding and, me? I feel like you, you throw that into that crowd of people and you're going to you're going to get responses. Uh, I I don't know. I well, I mean, clearly he did. Clearly he did because he got sixty some qualified applicants uh, that were able to fit through a seven inch gap, according to his Facebook job posting. (laughs) And so, so this is a very small person. Eighty percent of the applicants were female, and from this application pool, he ended up selecting an all women. Uh, paleoanthropology team to go explore this cave and when i read his book actually i think he said there was one guy who originally was like he lied about how big he was just to like get onto the crew (laughs) and then like as time as it came closer to actually do this he was like dude dude i can't fit through there (laughs) like i i lied i'm sorry and like i can't be on this team so uh it ended up being an all-women uh, paleoanthropologist team uh, that started the Morningstar project named after the cave. And <laughs> um, yeah, so the team starts making three to five trips into this cave every single day. You saw, you saw how big that was. Like they're doing that three to five times per day like with gear. And they, and they have cameras that are like, teleporting or not teleporting they have cameras that are recording and sending the footage to the people outside essentially the the rest of the team that can't fit into this freaking cave one sec sorry i had to cough but these badass women who uh went by the name underground astronauts i think it was yeah, nice. Yeah, because this this is so dangerous. Honestly, I think I would rather go into space than than do than go into one of those like Superman crawls. And uh. at the end of like their first expedition from this little chamber, they came out with 1200 fossil specimens from the Dinaledi chamber. And to date, I think there's over 1,700 fossil specimens comprising 15 individuals ranging from little baby infants all the way up to elderly Homo naledi. And uh, honestly, I completely recommend reading the book Almost Human. It got me super excited on human origins and just like the history of, you know, hominid species it's real it's a really great book and it's it's an inspiring story and homo homo naledi is also more than an inspiring story uh it's also an incredibly important fossil in terms of understanding our own origins it had a brain about the size of an orange it had ape shoulders but human arms and extremely curled fingers like something like a primate that is living in the trees, living up in the canopy and like hanging on branches. But its hips are also similar to those seen in the Lucy fossil. They're wide and flared, indicating that it was probably capable of 
bipedalism or walking on two legs instead of like a, a chimpanzee walking on its knuckles or something. And these fossils are about, they're between 230 to 330,000 years old, which is actually really young for uh, some of these more primitive traits like the shoulders and the brain size that were actually previously only known from exceptionally like from Australopithecines, which is a different genus within our family that predates the genus Homo. And the there those primitive traits were only ever seen in Australopithecines and the most earliest of early species of Homo. So that's that's really weird. But then it's got this mix of more derived traits like the hands and the feet that are more they're more modern. Like their their feet were our feet. And they actually have some of the most complete hand and foot fossils of any hominid ever discovered, which is incredible, I think. Like they have basically the entire hands and the entire feet of some of these specimens. I mean, it makes sense when you're uh, secluded in a cave for millions of years. <laughs> yeah, like nobody, nobody's coming to get those, <laughs> those get, No animal is really going to make that trek back in there. Yeah, well, they did They did find like a few like other animal bones in there. They found like owl bones, just like a couple. And then they found a couple of rodent incisors. So like maybe there could have been like some rat that got in there and stole a, you know, somebody's <laughs> pinky. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah but not not the whole thing yeah not not the so. whole thing um <laughs> okay okay so because of this weird mixture of the primitive and derived traits scientists are actually kind of confused where homo naledi falls in our family tree but they kind of think it was one of the first the very first homo species so this is the very beginning of our genus like that's i don't know i just that's just incredible like they're that's the origins of homo of us yeah humans yeah and humans as we know them today so <laughs> yeah that's that's us um so lee berger and other the other paleoanthropologists on this site they were really intrigued about one aspect of this discovery and it's why was there so many of them why did they pull 15 individuals out of this one room in this cave like what that's especially of a completely new species that had never been discovered before like why is there 15 of them in there and they start throwing out ideas and they well there was okay so there was evidence that the bodies had been deposited one by one over time it was not one you know one mass die off of all of these homo naledis and they just somehow were in the cave. They had been deposited one by one over time. And they started throwing out guesses that are more similar to other sites. Like, you know, maybe it's a predator or scavenger cache, like uh, some predator of homo naledi. Caught, caught a few of them and brought them back to his cache, kind of like a mountain lion would do, like hide its hide its kill somewhere. But there's no tooth marks on these bones. There's no sign of predation or scavenging on any of the bones that they recovered, not one. 
Uh, another guess they threw out was maybe a stream washed the bones in from elsewhere. There was no sign of sediment or any other materials being washed in that would have come with uh, this you know, stream. And the team came up with what today has become a pretty controversial claim, but I haven't heard any other ideas being thrown out. And they think that this was uh, a burial site where Homo Naledi buried their dead ritualistically and repeatedly. Critics hmm. of this hypothesis are stressing that, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and they don't think that there's enough evidence to support this, which from from what I, I don't know all of the evidence, but from what I've seen, there's no evidence to support it, but there's also no evidence to like refute it either. It's just kind of like, this is the only idea we got and we don't know what else it could be. They just, the, those, those critics just sound salty that they didn't get to find <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'd be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be getting petty too. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, but however, if it's true that Homo Naledi actually ritualistically and repeatedly buried their dead, as is put out by Lee Berger and his team, we have to rethink everything about what it means to be human it used to be like oh humans are human and we're superior because we are the only animals in the entire animal kingdom that are capable of crafting and using tools that's what makes us human and then jane goodall discovered chimps using tools to to pull ants out of out of the ground so that chimps could eat them and um then we came up with, well, you know, what actually makes us human is that we bury our dead. We're the only species that does or has ever buried our dead. And so now if we actually have, and I'm not saying definitively either way, whether or not this is a burial site, but if we actually have discovered another species that buries or disposes of its dead, what is it that makes us human? What makes us special? And maybe more existentially, are we special? That's no. the question I want to throw out to you guys. <laughs> I think we're special, but I think we're... We're special in our own ways. Uh, yeah, like <laughs> special in our own ways. I mean, so many other things are special too. I think we're full of it. We're full well, of it. Well, that too. Yeah, there's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah. We're, the, we're definitely the species most capable of being full of it. Well, that's what makes us human. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what makes Being us full of shit. shit. <laughs> I think, that's yeah, I think, I think that wraps up the discussion right there. Uh, what makes us human? We're full of shit. <laughs> but we're not even the only species capable of lying. So there's that. And, and yeah. I think the whole like burying our dead is really uh, like speciesist because. All the marine intelligent creatures can't bury anything. I mean, they could find some sort of way to like ritualistically dispose of their dead or something. Well, have you heard heard of like the the orca that like carried her dead calf around for like two months? Yeah, that's the opposite of disposing of your dead. That, it's mourning of your dead in some way. <laughs> yeah, which I think is really yeah. what burying your dead is all about: mourning them. I mean, yeah, there's there could be a lot of debate about what it actually means, like 
you know, emotionally, yeah, you're you're grieving and mourning. Um, maybe in the past, it's a way to sort of, you know, make sure that like if they were sick, that whatever they were sick with doesn't spread to the rest of your community and kill everybody else off. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a whole lot of different reasons that could be put forth of why we bury a- our dead. Ants will kind of... I, that's what I was oh, going to say. I'll, 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 let you, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. Oh, um, yeah. I know what you're going to say, but say it. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So ants, when they die... Um, well, it, different types of ants. So I think... What is it? When ants are infected with like something that they can bring then back to the colony, soldier ants, or just not soldier ants, but just worker ants, smell those ants out, the dead carcasses of those ones, and will essentially bring them to a separate chamber within the entire colony and just throw them in there mm-hmm. away from everybody else. And if you can synthetically put that like pheromone smell onto a live ant, <laughs> the other what? ants will grab that ant regardless how, of how much it thrashes <laughs> and complains uh, if I'm going to humanize it a little bit or anthropomorphize it. No matter how much it fights back, it will also be thrown into the pit of dead ants. Uh, <laughs> well, won't it just crawl back out? But then they'll just like, "Hey, get get back!" They'll, yeah, they'll just like keep throwing it back in. Yeah, I know exactly yeah, what you're keep... talking about. Isn't it cordyceps when they're infected with like that zombie fungus? That... The zombie fungus. I don't know if it's cordyceps or if it even is just like it's dead just dead ants. ants. But it's... yeah, because cordyceps will make dead ants crawl upward. They won't yeah. make them like go into the colony. Yeah, but like if the the colony senses that one of them is infected with cordyceps, they'll also take them out and throw them in the the death pit. Oh, probably. Yeah, I, yeah. I, probably. But I know for sure that you said, Sean, it's just dead ones in general. Yeah, the the ants at work with our colony studies, um, you, there's always a corner that this dead bodies start piling up. And <laughs> that's, you know, there, you can't actually count the dead ones because they're kind of in pieces at that point, too. Um, but yeah, there's just piles of dead ants. And wow. So, uh, which brings so that me was never even like what made us that's not that was never what made us human like no well unless unless like you want to get super specific about it being like well the the ants aren't burying them but which did did homo naledi bury them in the cave or were they just like placed i mean in a room this is this is like 93 feet underground so i would call that burying yeah i mean yeah i wonder if if you have to dig the hole yourself because then you could look at the 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 pharaohs like they built uh yeah. a giant thing they didn't dig yeah to bury these things yeah um, how how small there, was there kind of an exception like if 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 we had to like hire specialized uh paleontologists essentially to like get down there how were these guys pretty s- small yeah, yeah, Homo naledi was pretty, at least relative to us, pretty small. They were, on average, about four and a half to, like, four nine. They were, like, four nine. Mm. So, like, not, yeah. not like, ab- they were, yeah, they were abnormally small. Like, if that was a person, that would be pretty small. <laughs> did, did they ever find any evidence of, like, fire or like you know, did they have torches? Because how how the hell 
were these guys seeing down there? I don't know. That's uh that's one of the mysteries I think is like how they got them down there. I as I I've also heard like there's like carvings in the cave down there. I actually I feel like I remember seeing a headline about that, but I didn't like engravings I didn't read or something. That. I didn't read that. I didn't read about it, I should say. Yeah, and that can be something we follow up with yeah, for that's, sure. That is actually a great thing to follow up with. I'm gonna look I'm gonna look it up. So all right. I got I gotta tell you, Zach, you mentioned that this was in what, two thousand sixteen? Uh I think the papers came out in like two thousand sixteen. The discovery was like two thousand thirteen. Yes. And then some major discoveries were in 2015, because when I was studying abroad in Tanzania, that was September through December of 2015, when a bunch of articles came out about this cave and the findings within these caves, because it wasn't really super known until 2015 when the news started reporting on it. And I remember specifically because our professor came into class one day and said, you guys are going to be the first in the world to be lectured on this new species of Homo naledi found in a cave in South Africa. And he lectured on it like that afternoon after he read about it that morning. <laughs> and this would have been in 2015. Oh, that's that's cool. I'm jealous that you were one of the first people to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, Outside of like the paleoanthropology community, which I can't imagine is enormous right yeah he was really proud of himself for being kind of on the the forefront of all that so i mean that is really cool that's like one of if not like the biggest discoveries in human origins to date yeah yeah i remember he was just ecstatic about it just i mean east africa has a lot but it, it was cool that i mean it was always thought that the genus homo probably came out of east africa and it's like maybe not maybe maybe this is maybe they're far south and then they migrated up this way but more evidence will have to give us more of that story later i suppose yeah stay tuned stay tuned that's the the story of homo naledi as as kind of <laughs> abridged by myself after a final polish the paleontologists were finally able to observe the scene depicted in the amber sample. Encased inside was a primordial ballet between the ancient adversaries, a hell ant, also known as Ceratomeramex. I had that down, and I even was going over it as a spell in my mind, <laughs> uh, and I still butchered it. Ellen Bergeri, that's the species, but here, uh, hereafter known as the hell ant, and a cockroach relative, or at least a nymph of the cockroach relative. The hell ant, with its demonic scythe for jaws and horns, hold the hapless roach in a deathly grip. Unfortunately, their narrative ended as a glob of tree sap oozes across their battlefield, trapping them and eventually fossilizing the two forever. With this evidence, covered in 2017, 99 million years after the battle took place in Myanmar, scientists were finally able to confirm the behavior of the hell ant. They were ferocious predators. Now, I do want to just make a little side note, um, Sean. You're talking about the problems with ethically sourcing fossils. Well, in all of the articles that I read, and I read a lot of articles, every single one of them, I'm sure they had to like throw it in there at the end. 
um, because it was all worded the, the act, in the exact same way. But it was like this specific amber fossil that was found in Myanmar, it was ethically sourced because it was found in 2017 prior to um, military. Um, oh, that's certain yeah. amber specimens. Yeah. So China and Myanmar, like military presence within these areas and basically instead of blood diamonds where they're forcing people to dig up diamonds they're forcing people um to dig up you know amber samples and to to bring them into the market so the ones that you can buy from that area as of 2007 late 2017 and beyond uh are likely not ethically sourced but they all the articles were like this specific example (laughs) was before that (laughs) happened (laughs) So anyway, but back to the story, but as if the sap had just missed the branch that they were on, the hell ant easily holds onto the struggling nymph and prepares for phase two of its plan. With a swift jab of its abdomen, the hell ant delivers a paralyzing sting. The hell ant isn't putting all of this work in for itself. No, it has other plans for the prey. Being eusocial, or colony living, like modern ants and bees, It brings the nymph back to the colony and presents it to their own demonic offspring, their larva. Since the hell ant has incredibly modified mouthparts, which I'll get into, it can't just grab and eat, like similar to what we can and most animals can. But instead, it grabs the larva and then presents, or the nymphs, and presents it to the larva, who at that stage in their life still have regular mouthparts, which are always needing to be fed. So why are hell ants special? Their jaws, for one, are move in a different plane, uh, in a different plane than the modern ants. So modern ants, when they open and close their mouth parts, their jaws, they open them up to the side and out. So in and out. Instead, the hell ants they move their jaws up and down like us. However, their jaws are incredibly elongated and scythe-like, so they kind of go out and then curve back around and then protruding out of their head they have this cephalic horn and when they grab onto a prey they have triggers uh, trigger hairs on their mouth parts and when something triggers those hairs it the jaws snap shut and either trap or pierce against that cephalic horn on their head and so they are true ants they do fall within the family formicidae but belong to their own subfamily of Hydomyrmesinae. If I got that right, I don't know. I was going to look that up, but I did not because I didn't want to. Wanted to try it myself when I did not do a very good job. There are currently 10 genera and 14 species described, and two of those genera and three of those species have, have been described, or I guess all but two of those Uh, genre and three of those species have been described in the last 10 years so if you think about it right now we are in the hell ant renaissance so if you if you put in (laughs) the heyday of the research get in on it now (laughs) them in there it seems like in the last 10 years we've gotten more and more species wow uh, which is really exponentially and do they all do they all have this phallic horn so that's what distincts <laughs> yes. That's what <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> no, you could not. I <laughs> there's always one every episode. 
Yes. Now they all do have these scythe-like jaws with this horn that protrudes out, and that's what characterizes them as hell ants. It's like this. It's like a, a unicorn with like spiky jaws, basically. It's exactly what it is. Um, they're very scary looking, and so their name, I think, definitely reflects that. Why were these things not an arc? I literally I like I googled Ceratum Miramex, and. Like the third post was an arc dossier. <laughs> I, I, I see it right now. I'm looking at it and I'm like, man, this would have been so cool in that game. Yeah. Hey, why didn't that like, uh, why can... was, I didn't see that in any of the creature votes. It oh, should have been either. there. It would have been nice to have something that can carry stuff around. That's what I was thinking. Cause they're an ant and they can lift like 10, hundred times their body weight. Oh. oh yeah. They would just have massive carry weight. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, Arc, Arc, Arc Two will never come out. So Arc, <laughs> Arc is what we got. So maybe we can do another vote for. That. As of today, Arc One Point Five got pushed off till the end of the month. Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it I'm not going to say anything. Uh, we all predicted that. So, all right. But I want to talk about one notable species besides the one that I have been talking about. And it's called the Vampire Hell Ant. Oh, what? Which, if you didn't think any animal could have a cooler name, like, come on, Vampire Hell Ant, that's just the best. They just took, like, all of the badass things they could think of and just put it into one name. (laughs) It's a Vampire Hell Ant. (laughs) (laughs) And even their... (laughs) Exactly. Even their species uh, name is pretty cool. So the the scientific name is Linguamirmex, Vladi, with the the species part of that name is the cool part. Vladi after Vlad the Impaler, which was Bram Stoker's inspiration behind Dracula. Pretty cool. That's why it's called the Vampire Hell Ant. But they're just like all Hell Ants. Their mandibles kind of have that scythe shape to them. However, looking at them through fossilized amber, because amber can preserve things so well and with so much detail. They can see that these mandibles are actually grooved. And again, like we've been saying, all of this is a guess, right? And one of their guesses is that that groove can actually function when they pierce the prey item. It allows the insect's blood to drain down into the mouth of uh, of the vampire hell ant, which is up, up for a speculation, but it's still really cool. Yeah, to I'm going to opt on speculative on that one, but I like I like where they're going with it. I, yeah, 100% do too. Now, the the other cool thing about these ones in particular that I couldn't really find too much evidence for with the other ones is that when they x-ray these, uh, the, these amber fossils, they actually found that the mandibles of the vampire hell ant has sequestered metals. Mm-hmm. Oh, what? Sequestered metals is not unknown to the animal kingdom. I mean, That's like, unknown modern to beetles me. can do that. What's that? That's unknown to me. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah, some beetles sequester iron and zinc within their mandibles to make their mandibles stronger for chewing through harder and harder woods. Which ones are that? The scaly-footed snail that lives around the thermal vents down in the deepest parts of the ocean have like dragon-like armor scales that are made of sequestered metals that they get when they eat the bacteria that eat the metals that are coming out of the sulfuric vents. So they literally have metal armor on them. Um, so the these hell ants, they have ever heard of. reinforced metal jaws in an organic sense. Likely it's probably the same iron and zinc um, that you can 
more readily get as an organic individual. But yeah, and the idea is that it just makes their jaws that much more durable against consecutive snappings. And so, uh, of course, now when I was researching the vampire hell ant, then I got down into another <laughs> little, I, I guess, rabbit hole of the modern Dracula ant, what? which is still around today. They live in Africa, Asia, and Australia, so they're not uncommon. And they're not as cool looking. They, they look like regular ants, but their jaws are definitely more predominant than other species and they look little they look a lot longer than other species and they're not trap jaw ants trap jaw ants their jaws act more of like a, an alligator where they snap those jaws closed where the dracula ant they snap their jaws closed in a manner that's more similar to how we snap our fingers so when we snap our fingers we build up lots of tension between our middle finger and our thumb and then we release that tension to snap our middle finger onto our hand. And that's where we get all that speed and power from is that initial tension building up. So building up of lots and lots of kinetic energy um, or potential energy and then releasing it into kinetic energy. They do the same thing with their jaws uh, because they have an extra essentially part within their jaws that allows them to build up that pressure better than a trap jaw and. Whoa. And their mandibles actually move at 200 miles per hour, making them the fastest moving appendages in the animal kingdom. The one that we typically think about when we think about the fastest moving animal, like our appendage, is the mantis shrimp that can punch at the, you know, the velocity of a bullet. But these are actually faster than that, <laughs> which is pretty cool. And the idea is that it, it snaps so hard that it will stun or even kill any prey item then they bring that back to the colony and feed their young once again uh, all these traits evolved to essentially feed their babies which is also fun to think about but yeah the hell ant i mean it scientists are baffled that such an interesting and uh, you can argue whether it's like super diverse being like 13 uh, or 10 genre and 14 different species. I mean, that's from the fossil record, so that's pretty amazing in itself. But how these ones just disappeared. They just went extinct while modern ants just thrived and eventually would basically take over every single part of the world in terms of ants. But they don't really know exactly what happened. They don't know why these specific ants went extinct when other ones did just fine. And again, I'm assuming that they'll start to piece that together. But that's that's kind of the narrative I had for the hell ants. Maybe, maybe uh, they're... But I did want... Oh, I was going to say, maybe they're like oh, too yeah. specialized. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading a little bit more about the, the, the cockroach nymph, well, cockroach relative nymph, the idea is that they have like this special groove on the underside of their like thorax or their pronotum that helps them escape the jaws of the... Mm of the hell ant and it just so happens that this this one because it was trapped and then sap immediately you know there this tree resin immediately fell on top of them that it was doomed to be forever stuck with it mm -hmm. and that over time they just got better and better at escaping the jaws and that's probably what happened but the fact that they were so diverse uh, at one time and found in lots of different parts of the world means that there was something behind it hmm well, maybe like but I guess it just speciation leads to specialization, right? 
So like maybe right. maybe if they had not evolved into you know ten or more different species, like they might still be they around. They would have been a little off. more generalist, but instead mm-hmm. they started occupying different niches and trying and I guess avoiding each other's competition, intrust specific yeah. competition, that they all became too specialized and when whatever conditions or food source they evolved to specialize on disappeared, so did they. Or or its or its prey got too too smart, too good at evading it. I don't know. That kind of like sounds like an evolutionary arms race, right? Like mm-hmm. the ants are also going to get better at catching them, right? As as they get better at you escaping, think? they have to get better at catching them. Or they go extinct. Yeah, if they can't quite keep up that with that arms race. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's probably a better answer out there. I just didn't find it when I was looking mm. when, when I was looking all this up. But I mean, either way, you know, I mean, now ants are incredibly diverse, and I don't know if that <laughs> bodes well for them at this point. But they're doing, <laughs> I think they're doing just fine. Yeah. So I have a funny story <laughs> about ants. I don't. To be completely fair, as an entomologist, I know almost nothing about ants. Like, that is one insect that I have never bothered to look into very much. But when I was in grad school, I would go to the gym after after work, after class, and there was always this old man in the locker room. And it's stereotypic old man in the locker room. <laughs> He's swinging, he's he's swinging around, and he found out as an entomologist, and every single day he would ask me about ants, <laughs> and tell me like cool new facts he learned about an ant over the weekend. He's like, "Did you know that this species of ant learned to count to three? <laughs> like, I don't care." <laughs> so what you're telling me, Zach, is that you don't know anything about ants because you refuse to listen to the naked man. <laughs> yeah. It was it was a little hard to pay attention to what he was saying. <laughs> Elephant trunk uh, swinging around. It was a uh... now. Now you need to go back and be like, "Have you heard of this one? <laughs> Have you heard of a deer, a Didomirma venatrix, the Dracula ant, the Dracula ant, or uh, or the hell ant? What was it, Ceratomyrmex?" Yes. Uh, you can leave it at the genre. Flat eye. Plenty. Uh, that was the, that was the other oh. one. <laughs> yeah, you combine the two, but that's okay. They're all they're all in the same subfamily. So, yeah. But I did want to talk about amber and how amber forms, uh, because I think that in itself is really cool, uh, and why amber is so important when looking at these these ancient things. So bone, because bone is so hard. If the conditions are right, bone is pretty good at fossilizing. I mean, that's why we have so many bones. But just to create a fossil is extremely rare. Uh, we we find lots of fossils, but I mean, we're talking about life that has been existing for hundreds of millions of years and not everything fossil, just barely a percentage of a percentage of a percentage fossilized. And with softer bodied animals or smaller animals, uh, or plants and other bits, the odds of them ever fossilizing within rock is even lower. And amber gives us a special look into how some of these things actually looked in real time. So what amber is, 
is at one time trees figured out a really good defense mechanism and we're talking like at least a uh, hundred million years ago and what it is is resin and so a tree when a tree experiences a wound or say a beetle drills down into it the tree will from the center of the tree it will produce this nice sticky runny stuff and it will clog and push out whatever uh, is in the wound or created the wound and uh, the idea is if there's maybe an insect inside of the tree it will encase the the insect and trap it within there and it will plug open or it will plug closed the wound and resin has a lot of antibacterial antimicrobial uh, antiseptic just properties to help fight off infections for the tree like glue it's sticky so anything that comes into contact with it is likely to get stuck to it and if enough come out get stuck within it and whether the tree encases it within the tree itself or the glob comes out of the tree if the wound is big enough it will glob up it'll fall down to the forest floor i mean you can see trees that are doing this today you know especially pine trees if you cut off a branch of a pine tree there's going to be a big glob of resin that comes out of that wound and starts to drip onto the ground i mean this is how native american uh, people in uh, or at least like in the great lakes region would seal their canoes they would a fur uh, they would use fur the balsam fur they would you know they would use that so these trees even today still produce lots of this stuff oh yeah tree yeah as a as a, a forest entomologist i see tree resin all the time and from my perspective it kind of seems like it was evolved by uh by trees mainly what i see is in coniferous trees like pines yeah. dug dug fir true firs it, it was it was in that f- it was in pine uh, pinaceae. Pinaceae. Is that how you say it? Pinaceae. Yeah, it was in that that uh, category of trees that, that this stuff evolved. So well, other other trees also have resin, but like yeah, this this specific type of resin was evolved in coniferous trees as a defense against wood boring beetles like bark beetles. So they like make these uh, resin ducts within the the cambial layer. And as these wood boring insects go through the bark, they sever these uh, resin ducts and all of this pitch comes out and it actually pushes whatever beetle was trying to infest the the tree, pushes them out and they get stuck in it. And then, yeah, I guess they could eventually become amber. Uh, I actually have a piece of pre-amber, we'll call it, hanging on uh, on my board at work. I found a... A mountain pine beetle that got stuck in in resin and i took it off the tree and i i pinned it to my board <laughs> nice well i mean okay so what you observed is what happens when this resin comes out it starts to harden just like just like glue however at that point even though that bark beetle is now preserved inside of that thing and resin is really is a really good dehydrator so it'll start to dehydrate whatever is inside out leaving behind the hard the hard parts of it but at this point it's still not a fossil Uh, it may look like that and it may be nice and hard but it's still not what we consider a fossil in order for the fossilization to occur that piece of resin has to essentially get buried or fall to the you know the bottom of a sea or a deep lake basically being cut off from all oxygen where over time 
the inorganic materials that make up the, the resin evaporate out. And when that happens, the organic parts of the resin polymerize and form harder and harder bonds between each other until millions of years later, and that's how long this stuff takes to actually fossilize, you get something that's incredibly hard, like a rock. I mean, it's basically rock at that point. I mean, it's as hard as a rock. And inside, whatever was inside is just preserved as is with all of the detail that it once had because it polymerized inside. So <laughs> we've all seen Jurassic Park. <laughs> uh, we've all know that how the premise of the movie was started was a mosquito that had some blood inside of it that they drilled down, they pulled out some of that blood, and inside that blood was dino DNA. Dino DNA! Now, now, fossilized amber can preserve DNA for a lot longer than any other known method of preserving DNA. Oh, that's cool. But <laughs> it cannot it cannot preserve the DNA for millions of years. You're telling me the movie was wrong? Years. The movie was wrong. <laughs> Sorry about I have that. a tattoo um, for this! I know. I, just, uh, I hate to tell you, but you desecrated uh, your body for nothing. For science, for, for, for science. but for bad science. No. <laughs> DNA does not have a half life long enough for us to be able to bring back any dino DNA. Um, it's only a few hundred thousand years old. That's how long DNA might be able to last within amber. There's a lot of debate about it, but there's That's no chance that any time. dino DNA will ever exist because it just the atoms themselves break down into other atoms, essentially, is what's going on. What about a woolly mammoth? You might be able to extract some usable DNA from a woolly mammoth. But again, because of how things erode, ex- or erode, break down kind of exponentially, it probably, there's probably not a whole lot of like usable DNA within even the best preserved samples that I've just thought out from the Siberian permafrost or whatever so what what amber is really good at doing is preserving the visible structure of whatever was inside when the when that resin hit it Um, it can create such fine details that we have spider web that can be preserved we have feathers from dinosaurs that have been preserved um, in addition to i mean tons and tons of plant matter and insects and it like other than a few very very rare fossil insects Amber is the way that we've been able to observe insects in terms of the fossil record. I'm just looking at some amber fossils online and you can buy them for pretty cheap. I found a bark beetle for like 40 euro. No. So uh, it's really easy to fake amber. (laughs) And even with the amber, larger insects probably were really good at getting out of the amber before they actually fossilize. So if you found like something that has like a big chunk, like a big giant beetle preserved in it or a big grasshopper. Oh, or no, this is a bark beetle. That's a fake. Um, now, the, yeah, that's probably real. But remember that it might not be ethically sourced. So you got to be careful with where the like where that amber originates from. Right now, the Baltic Sea in Northern Europe it's is Baltic considered amber. like a pretty safe area. <laughs> sick! I'm buying it right now. Add to cart. There you go. Okay, it's a it, it is a Baltic Sea amber bark beetle, Curculionidae, Scalidinae, and two spiders. Ooh, uh, fossil Ooh, inclusions cool. in Baltic amber. 
There you go. All right, Baltic Amber it is then. From so, the Eocene. And it's honey it's colored. It's dollars and it has and it has two spiders? I, I feel like that might All not I want be is the real. bark beetle. It's 40 Before you, bef- it's 40 Before Euro. you buy it, send it to me, Zach, cuz I've been doing a lot of research <laughs> cuz I also want an insect preserve. It's on amberinclusions.eu. Okay, well, that's nonsense. <laughs> mean the website I'm on, Anybody. the website I'm on, the cheapest ones that are out of stock are under two are like between a hundred and two hundred dollars, and the yeah. only ones available are between two and three hundred dollars. Well, yeah, this is a bark say, beetle. They're pretty expensive. Bark so. beetles are pretty like under the radar, unless you are a forest entomologist. Yeah, but if it has two spiders in it as well, yeah, that's three, three things. The thing that I'm uh, looking at, I just see a spider, and I don't see the rest of it. Oh, whoa! That's that's not a, that thing has wings. I don't know what it is, but it's next to the spider. Is it the yeah, bark there's a beetle? whole bunch of stuff. No, it's like well, a wasp. Send it to me before you buy it, and I'll take a look at it. I'm buying it. I don't care what you say. <laughs> he'll 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 send you it after he buys it to you. Oh, perfect. oh okay. Perfect. Okay, very good. Well, uh I think yeah, unless if we have anything to add. I think that wraps up some from some fossil stories. Uh do we have a shout out this week? Yeah, nobody nobody told me, but I'm going to shout out Michelle and uh, just to see if she's listening. <laughs> Hi Michelle. What are you- Hi, Michelle. Hello. <laughs> let, let me know if you hear this. And if you don't, you owe me a weekend somewhere. You owe him a, a Baltic amber. You, you owe me a Baltic amber <laughs> curculionid. Michelle Obama's going to buy you a fossil? Yeah, me, me and Michelle Obama are super tight. I was trying to think of a yeah, nickname on the spot, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised. Yeah, I guess I can chat. Oh, I actually do want to sh- give a shout out. I want to shout out my brother, Grant Stout. So if you didn't get it from the last episode, my brother, Grant, is the owner and main artist of the Rocky Mountain Sticker Company, the, the, the company that gave us our stickers and that uh, quote unquote sponsored us last episode <laughs> through these stickers, which I still need to send to you you guys. So Yeah, I'm waiting but, on uh, it. My brother, him and his fiance, Leslie, have been listening to the podcast every single time an episode comes out. I think Aww. they're the first ones to listen to they're it. They're our biggest fans. They are our biggest Big fans. Big shout out um, to our biggest fans. And yeah, my brother, he went to the Natural History Museum in Denver last weekend or I don't know, two weekends ago. It seems uh, all blurs together. And it was like, hey, we listened to your podcast episode on the way to the museum so that we could go see some of the stuff that you talked about. So he went and he took a picture of the castroides and the bison, <laughs> uh, bison latifron specimens that they have at the museum. Aww. And uh, was like, check it out, we saw them. And uh, so I had to give a big shout out to him for doing that. Um, that was really nice of him. Nice. So. Well, that, that reminds me, when I went to the museum, I sent you guys the picture of me next to a megatherium. Those things are so big. Uh-huh. It, they have a, a fake taxidermy one at the Iowa University of Iowa Museum. Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah. Yeah, that, that thing is like arm was the size of my body. Yeah, I would, would not want to mess with one. 
Well, I thought this episode was going to be an hour. A little longer, but it's not two hours yet. It's not It's not over <laughs> two hours, which is what they have been. So that's good. We shortened oh, it a God. bit for you. Shortened it a bit. By about 15 Alrighty. minutes. You're welcome. <laughs> we'll end it with, the, with our signature how-how. How-how! <laughs>